Welcome to the Matter Hackers Podcast. I am Dave, and I am excited to bring you along on this adventure, diving deeper into additive and digital manufacturing. Today, we are going to sit down with industry experts and talk about the reality of printing actual, real metal parts on your desktop 3D printer. Matter Hackers goes to a bunch of trade shows, and I think the most common question I've been asked over the last decade is, does your printer print metal? And always our answer ha has been no. Like, no, these they, they print a version of metal that you can polish and it looks like metal. But over the last year or two, BASF has come to the market with actual real metal parts that sound like metal. They feel like metal. They are density of metal. They were actually stainless steel. Uh, and that is really changes the game in terms of, you know, having a great answer at a trade show, first of all, of does your 3D printer print metal? The answer is now yes. And it's not one 3D printer. It is now all FFF desktop 3D printers, whatever you probably have at home, can 3D print actual metal parts, thanks to BASF and their, their materials that they're offering. So why is this a game changer? And I, I genuinely do think it's the coolest Thing in the 3D printing industry since sliced bread, if sliced bread was from the 3D printing industry. Uh, but I think that shows the sentiment of what you can actually do with your 3D printer that you have at home or in your workshop or at, at, at maybe you're a professional 3D printing. It's now possible to, to 3D print with stainless steel 316L or 17.4 pH from BASF, their, their line from Ultrafuse. And you print green parts, they get centered, and they come back actual real metal parts. And that is such a cool sentiment to be able to succeed at that on this level. And the pricing has never been cheaper. Uh, in, in the past, metal 3D printing has really only been available on machines that are hundreds of thousands of dollars, which makes a per part cost of, you know, a grand or more per part after you kind of think about all, all of the processes that go into this. And the FFF machines have been around for decades now and well-established, but limited to thermoplastics. Um, where BASF comes in with some of their dark arts and magic is actually from metal injection molding. And if you know anything about metal injection molding, it is essentially injection molded material that gets injection molded, centered, de or debound, then centered, and comes out as a metal, actual metal real part. You encounter these all the time, whether it's in a cordless drill or a watch or some car parts or even keys. You've probably in the last week held something that has a uh, metal injection molded centered part in it in some way. Uh, BSF makes that material. They've got a lot of expertise here. They came to market with that material now in the form for 3D printing. And that that's the real what's happening here and how it's so accessible is... They took the magic of metal injection molded and combined it with 3D printing. And now you can, instead of injection molding your parts, you can 3D print them on, on your 3D printer. A couple little hardware requirements. We'll go over those later with Taylor, um, but generally accessible on every 3D printer. If you got an Ultimaker, it's already in the, there's a material profile for it. If you've got even the cheapest of cheap machines, you're like an all-metal hot end and a, a geared extruder away from really succeeding there. Before we get too deep into it, I want to sort of clear the air and get some definitions out of the way. So obviously, you're going to be 3D printing 
what we call green parts. These green parts are essentially a hybrid of some metal powder in with a thermoplastic. And that's how you're able to print these parts that are very highly metal, about 80% metal, 20% thermoplastic, but can run through your printer. So from your printer, you will make a green part. Then it gets turned into a brown part. Brown parts are after debinding, but before sintering. So this is where the parts are weakest and there are some design considerations that you have to keep in mind when the part is in its brown state because it is so fragile at this point. Uh, debinding, let's just talk debinding in general. Debinding is when uh, all of the plastic is removed from your part. So there's 80% metal, 20% plastic. We, through debinding, are going to remove that 20% of plastic. The final step is actually sintering. So after it's a brown part, it gets sintered. That sintered part takes the 80% material and condenses it down into 100% metal, 100% dense part. So it takes all the little bits and pieces of metal and fuses them all together so you have like an actual metal part. So now with some of those definitions out of the way and an understanding of every desktop 3D printer uh, that is currently printing thermoplastics is capable of this metal 3D printing, I think it's worth talking to some industry experts. And for that, we're going to go to Mara, and she's going to talk to a couple people that are actually using this, uh, use cases that are real and in the world, and we're excited to share with you. Thanks, Dave. Hey, listeners. My name is Mara Hittner, and I am Vice President of Strategic Partnerships at MatterHackers. I'm so excited to share this panel recording from IMTS 2020, exploring how Somerset Community College and L3 Harris are both breaking barriers of low-cost 3D printing with BASF 316L stainless steel. You'll hear about additive manufacturing certificate programs teaching how to print metal on $600 desktop 3D printers and exactly how much time and money global aerospace and defense technology innovator L3 Harris saves by printing Ultrafuse in-house versus outsourcing their metal parts. Listening to these leaders describe their processes will be super valuable. And if you would like to see the slides they are referencing, I know I get next slide FOMO, they are available for you at matterhackers.com slash podcast. Check it out. I'm super excited to be here talking about 3D printing with real actual metal on uh, inexpensive 3D printers. So we have three stars of our show today for IMTS, uh, none of which are me. Uh, Eric Waldridge, uh, who you uh, heard is the director of the uh, AM Center of Excellence at Somerset Community College. And then also Mark Holdhouse, who is a lead designer and additive lead at L3 Harris and BASF Ultrafuse 316L Stainless Steel FDM Filament. Eric, it is all yours. I give you my friend, Eric. He's gonna give you some uh, um, applications for this process. Uh, good afternoon and good morning. As mentioned, I am Eric Wooders, the professor and director of the Edmund Manufacturing Center of Excellence for at, located at Somerset. But we're actually part of the entire state system. Slide for me, if you would please, Mark. Click mm -hmm. um, on over the next slide. And so we're actually part of a 16 community college system across the entire state. Uh, next one. And we're located at the Somerset campus. And what our job is essentially is to get additive manufacturing 
out across the state through all of our 16 campuses. So what we do at Somerset is we actually build in the materials, the training, we test out equipment, we develop the curriculum, best practices to then get to the other 16 sites and help them to bring up the workforce. Um, overall goal, spread this skill set throughout the state and even beyond. Next slide. And to do this, we have to start off with one crucial fact. As we work with students, as we work with small businesses, we have to tell them this story, make sure they understand this above all else. Additive manufacturing is not really about the 3D printer. It's about the mentality. Because when we, when we look at it, we see new materials, new technology, things like that a cha changing every six months. We have a new adapter, a new upgrade, a new breakthrough. And so the equipment gets better and better and better. But the problem that we run into and what we have to really leap forward in is the mentality. Next slide. And to help people understand this, we tell them that additive is about next generation design. It's about next generation materials. And of course, that's what we're talking about today. But it's also about next generation production and automation, being able to take the combination of the top two and turn it into production applications in a way that we have never had access to before. Next slide. What we also point out to folks is in terms of 3D printing, it is not about this. Keychains and trinkets, advanced technology, the ability to create generative design and lattice structure. I mean, the technology that is literally being used to make rocket engine parts is being used to make keychains and trinkets and poo emojis. And the fact is that's actually hindering the movement. Additive manufacturing is more about this. Next slide. It's about things we could never get before amazing designs and shapes that look like they were grown for a particular situa situation, not manufactured. I mean, you've got the new brake calipers by Bugatti. You've got the ability to actually create lightweighted parts, equipment going into space, lighter, faster, stronger, and you have the ability to set up production lines. You have actually literally military divisions setting up production lines for their supply chain breakdowns by just buying up benchtop printers to print what they need on demand. Next slide. And then of course, you have this. The ability for us to just turn around and take a desktop model, $600 printer or less, and start producing metal parts right in the classroom, right in within a small business, and these are true metal parts, which is an incredible breakthrough. Without having to do all the, the normal safety equipment, the training, the expertise, we can print on demand and even all the way down to an elementary school level capability, which is amazing. Next slide. So I point out the number of, of I keep saying cost and low cost. We refer to that as LCAM. That stands for low cost additive manufacturing because we point out that you don't get technology revolution by the top down, by the expensive equipment. It just doesn't happen. Let's face it. Google started with two guys in, a, in one lady's garage. eBay started because people had the access to a low cost way to basically get rid of their junk in their garage. And so you don't get revolutionary ideas through high end equipment. You get it through low cost accessibility. And so that's what we push within our program is we focus on the mentality with a low cost equipment and then move up. Obviously, next slide. 
so that when the, the 316L came along, the Ultrafuse came along, we were following the reports of it coming out and just as soon as it became available on Matter Hackers, bought up ropes because we saw this as the next huge step in low cost additive manufacturing access. And so the first thing that we did, you go to the next one, is we started printing with this. We started printing plates, parts, components, whatever we can do, and then turning around and doing typical uh, machining and processing work on them. So we start welding the parts together. We start seeing how well they work. We start cutting them open to see what they look like on the inside. To actually turn this desktop pr printer into a metal printer that prints metal parts that we can do all sorts of other processes with. Next slide. All the way down to actually boring and tapping, to throwing it on a lathe, bending it, uh, doing hardness testing. You know, we wanted to see how far we could push the envelope. And you know, I know we kind of said stay within that one, you know, 100 millimeter by 100 millimeter zone. We push it well past that. Because at the end of the day, we want next generation products and we want to see how far this stuff can go. So when this opened up an opportunity for us, we saw it as a huge chance to actually push this out across our entire state system. Next slide. And so we start producing all sorts of components and moving in that general direction. You know, everything from textured components, the welds that we push into, uh, hit the next one for me, all the way to in, in place, print in place, moving parts. And we start showing it to the world and showing it to our students and technicians and small businesses and saying, you can do this and this is where the technology is going. Next one. And we also kind of make the point that we don't just start from the top down, but we start from the bottom up in almost an infiltration mode. So we've taken all this low cost mentality. We've taken the ability for folks to understand it, but we don't want, we didn't create a four year 3D printing program. We didn't create a two year 3D printing program. We created a certificate because we want folks who are in industrial maintenance. We want folks who are in engineering. We want folks who are going into surgical tech. We want folks who are going into machine tool, criminal justice, art, business and development. We want everyone to understand this technology. So what they do is they take their primary program that they're learning and planning on getting a job for, and we allow them to take a few extra classes and learn additive along the way. And what happens is they go to work, they get a job, and they take the additive mindset with them, and it allows them to turn around and bring added to the workplace by saying, you know what, to their manager, this part that keeps breaking, perhaps an industrial maintenance guy has actually seen a part that breaks on equipment. He tells his boss, he says, hey, you know, we get a three or $400 printer, maybe $600 printer. I can print this part, take care of our problems. And that gets the ball rolling. That changes the mentality. And then that mindset starts to flow vertically, which is exactly what we want. Now they may turn around and buy more high cost equipment over time, but it's the low cost access that makes the biggest difference. So we train the students that way. We train the teachers that way. We have teachers all the way from like the high school, college level down to elementary level, learning it with this type of mentality. And then of course, we'll go in and we'll train folks that are already in the workforce. You know, oftentimes this is actually a couple of pictures we took when we were training some folks from the DOD and specifically their special response teams uh, to use additive manufacturing as part of their equipment gear and preparations and even logistics to doing what they do. So the ability to integrate additive at a low cost model is the way to go, is the way to educate, and is the way to get small business up to speed and create this innovation we go for. And now we have the ability to do it in metal. And that's just a huge, 
huge step, not only for our state, but what we're pushing out for the nation and eventually the world to bring metal 3D printing to everyone and also in incorporating the next generation design mentality of like generative, lattice structure work, the stuff that we're seeing with Fusion 360 in topology that creates these next generation components straight out of metal, tool steel, all kinds of things. And the, the opportunities for this are just unlimited. So that's kind of what we do. And that's how we kind of got into this space. Uh, you can easily, easily check out uh, material for what we provide on our social media. You can take a screen capture of this if you want, but I'm pretty easy to find. You can just say Eric Waters 3D printing in Kentucky or SCC 3D printing. And you can find all of our social media where we post out not only what we do, but also what's really happening in additive because folks just don't realize what all is going on. Everything from the biomedical printing all the way to the aerospace components that are being made, even to the new vehicles that we have that already have 3D printed parts on them. So it's important for folks to be aware so that they're aware of the opportunities they get to take advantage of. So uh, that's kind of what we did. That's how we got into this space. I'll, I'll turn it back over to you, Mara, to, to go from there. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Eric. As, as you know, I am such a nerd for what you are doing here. It just blows my mind that this kind of education and this kind of technology is so accessible. I mean, you, you were telling me that you're using $400 printers to and and this material which is what like 60 bucks for a half of uh for for three kilograms something like that or sorry um it's like uh 350 something like that which like yeah. you know it's not pla cost but it's also not metal cost it's not anywhere close to metal i mean the fact is we can turn around the, there's no way cnc and, and typical machine tool can touch this for one thing the waste ratio is ridiculously different we don't have hardly any waste in additive Whereas CNC, you take a block of material and you cut it down, that's all kinds of scrap you can't get back. But you also have the, the problem with, you have to deal with that in terms of a, uh, either recycling or hazardous waste situation, which even adds up the sustainability impact of that process. I mean, there's data upon data of the sustainability impact in, in comparison between additive and conventional manufacturing. So it's just unheard of the, uh, to be able to do what we do and be even more efficient with the material in this case. Uh, and then Eric, I'm sorry, Eric and Mara, Mar, if you could go back to the slide showing the uh, Bugatti uh, Chiron brake pad. Uh, this was the star of the Emo trade show in Germany uh, a year and a half ago, two years ago about, uh, right there on the lower yeah. left of this. Uh, this was in four different uh, manufacturing technologies companies booths because everyone was so proud of this. The, the company that printed it, the company that supplied the material, the company that machined it, uh, and the company that sold the tools to machine it all had that brake caliper on display because this is in a, uh, a vehicle, I think it's $1.4 million vehicle that can go 300 miles an hour on the ground. Uh, and this is what stops it is a 3D printed titanium part uh, that can handle the heat and pressures to go from 300 miles an hour down to zero in seconds. Uh, it's uh, one of the more impressive applications anyone's ever seen from 3D printing. And what I like to point out about that, too, is this, you know, Bugatti gets the contract going, gets the work going, but then you see immediately it starts getting the sold to Ford and BMW and everyone else. There's already other lines and versions of it on the market for other vehicles, and that is telling right there. And I, I'm looking at the, uh, you know, the, the print farm there of the uh, beautiful Ultimaker S5s, um, which are wonderful machines. They're around $6,000 each. 
Um, and but this print farm model is very much alive and well. I mean, from the matter hackers perspective, we pe we see people buying 25, 50, sometimes 100 of these inexpensive 3D printers to set up actual medium and sometimes high-ish volume production. Now you're basically setting up print farms like this only with $400 3D printers, is that right? It's a range. Uh, this particular one that we have is actually the French Army that, that set this up right in the middle of COVID. Um, the, we do a lot of different ranges for that and uh, we are going, for, and that's always what it go back to is it's constantly changing. So it might be a $400 printer, you know, one, one or two months is the hot item and then the next it's a $600 printer. So we adapt the print farms as we build them across the state to whatever the latest and greatest technology is. But again, we're still talking about equipment that's generally under $600 regardless. And you can set up volumes of these things. And then, of course, we are entering into this new phase. You can see this in the equipment being pushed out. The new phase of automation. You know, you see what, what uh, the Q3D systems are doing. You see what Quinley is doing. You see what uh, the Creality is doing with these belt printers. You know, but automation is the next step on top of what we already saw with volume printing. So it's, it's a crazy awesome opportunity of low-cost access. Basically, barrier removal for someone to take an idea to market like that. As long as you understand how additive works, you understand the mentality and how to use it to your best benefit. And the other thing that's really driving this innovation is the innovation in the materials and companies like BASF that are taking material that maybe previously was only available with injection molding and then actually making FDM filament that can be used by these open source 3D yeah. printers, whether it's a Ultimaker or Creality or MakerBot or you know where whatever whatever you've got. Yep. Um, I know that BASF has announced that they do have another material that's coming out. Do you want to tease that? Uh, so we got to have a cool conversation yesterday with uh, BASF America and of course Germany and uh, some some great guys that we got to talk with that have have the same passion that we do. And uh, yeah, there is uh, the other grade of stainless steel coming out a little bit more geared for uh, tooling applications. And then uh, there's, there's more to come. Um, we're going to be testing out and seeing how we can implement this quickly. Um, as, you, as you see, we're already throwing welds to them. And to be perfectly honest, the welds are beautiful. The, uh, we're seeing everything from uh, stick and tick working well, next is MIG, and we're actually seeing that it actually welds better than typical stock stainless steel in terms of heat dissipation. So we're going to see a lot of opportunities come out with these new materials and uh, very, very excited about what's about to be possible. Yeah. Eric, I just adore what you do. And I adore the fact that, you know, we keep talking about it's accessible, it's accessible. Your certificates are, are through a community college. It's meant to be accessible. It's it meant to be easily findable, discoverable, doneable by people of all ages that whether they're looking to first get in, whether they're just coming out of high school or whether they're getting back into the job market, whether they want to upskill. Um, it's just so exciting. Yes. And just wait till I have my middle schoolers start to start small businesses on their own with 3D printing. You know, that's, um, we're going to make that happen. I'm going to be right there by your side, brother. Thank you so <laughs> much for all of that. Mark? from L3 Harris is next. Thanks, Mara. Um, a little bit about um, who we are. Uh, we're, we're the fusing and ordnance division of L3 Harris. And basically we design 
and build precision fusing systems, height of burst sensors, uh, proximity sensors, uh, penetrators. Our products basically initiate another event. So uh, we have a lot of a lot of metal parts in our in our products, and we have a lot of electronics in them, and we interface with other systems within within the the, the other systems that we're integrating too. Um, we've been metal printing uh, with BASF material, um, the 316LX to start out with, and the L. We, uh, we started in early 2019. Um, in 2019, we partnered with BASF, uh, uh, Cincinnati, and DSH Technologies to work on successfully printing uh, not only green parts, but also producing dense metal parts and tooling. Uh, next slide. We developed a process that we use, um, and we, we use it internally to teach other people about, about how this process works. I think the thing to, to, to note that it does use uh, metal injection molding technology for debind and sintering. Uh, so that's a, that's a well-established process that's out there. And um, we're gonna go down this, this particular arrow uh, as, as I speak. Next slide, please. Um, for, for us at, at uh, L3 Harris, uh, the application of metal uh, fused filament fabrication printing uh, opens up uh, freedom that, that's not available by other processes. Um, designers and engineers, they, concentrate, they can concentrate more on, on their design as to what they really want it to be versus constraining that to their design plus having to uh, look at what some of the processes that are out there that may not be applicable to what they want. Um, uh, BASF has design guidelines out there and I, I encourage everybody to follow those because they're pretty good. Uh, we are printing wall thicknesses to, to 40 thousandths of an inch, one millimeter. Um, and um, if you look at the picture to the right, uh, you'll see a hundred thousandths by 280. But if you want to go like a one inch, then we, we expand that out to, to 185. So there's that ratio that, we're, that we're, we're dealing with when we're printing straight walls. Um, three to one is recommended. We do go up to five to one in, in some cases. And again, uniform wall thicknesses. Um, that does reduce the stress, not only in the printing, but also in the, in the debind and centering. And uh, the 60 degree thing, we, we go 60 degrees. I guess you can go 50, but we've been sticking around at 60. Uh, and that's been working out very well. If you look at the lower picture on the lower right, that's an actual cut section cut through a housing that has a 55.98 degrees on it. So that's, that's a housing that a lot of our parts would fit into, electronics and, and spacers and things like that. And then there'll be a, a lid put on top and that'll be laser welded around around the unit just to seal it off. And then it'll be a connector coming out someplace on the side and that'll be laser welded in. Uh, next slide, please. Um, we typically orientate the parts as if they're going to be CNC machined. So everything is in the same, is in the same orientation. We find that helps quite a bit. Um, we do uh, put side holes in, but we teardrop the shape and then go back and, and open them up if we have to. Um, and they're scaled. So remember, 
that it's 20% less. They always talk about 20 per scale it up 20%, but it's also 20% less than the build volume of your machine. So, so we, we've had some people run into that where the parts don't actually fit in a machine because they didn't count for that. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so in manufacturing preparation, um, we basically, uh, we will copy our design model or preferably we link it back to the design model. So we have a manufacturing model linked to the design model. When you update the design model, the manufacturing model updates. Um, so that, that's been working out quite well for us. Uh, we prepare the, prepare the model, we'll remove features that are best machines. So if you've got close tolerance holes or something like that, we'll go ahead and, and remove those and put them in later. Um, we add features to aid in printing such as supports. Uh, we don't auto support, we generate most of those by hand because we found that to, to be more effective for us, especially for our small parts. And we plan for as little machining as possible. So we look at the part and determine what the orientation should be. We determine what the steps would, would be required to machine it if it was if it was metal printed. And, and, and we use that as our process to move forward. Then we scale the model and it's approximately 20%. Um, and that's and that of course is for the for the shrinkage during during the sintering process. And then we generate our tessellated file for the slice software. Uh, next, next slide, please. What we've done is we've we've generated a spreadsheet, and we track things so that so that we can really hone in the the scaling factors on on this material. Um, we found that that different machines in in and room conditions sometimes the the the, the scale values may may be different. We had our machine upgraded three times. And each time it came back, uh, we had to go back and retweak the scale values because because it was slightly different. So things were working different. Um, so so what we do is we start out on the, if you go on the left, the, the scale value. We'll start out with the recommended values, and we'll have our target part size, which is which is the block next. Then we have we print our part. We have a measured green part size, so we measure that. We'll send we send it out and get it centered. We measure the part that comes back. Once we get that part that comes back, we enter those those the other two two blocks to the to the right of that, where the adjusted scale value and the adjusted green part value. Those automatically update to what we really should have scaled the part to, and um, so 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 we use this quite a bit. Once we hone it in, then we know what what the scale values will be for thin parts, medium medium height parts tall parts because we're finding those values are slightly different as, as we get into this. Um, we also noticed that shrinkage can occur in the printed part and also needs to be considered for debinding and centering. So we've, we've note, we see that in, in, in our, our, our chart here that just because we think the, uh, the, the green part size, especially the height should be a certain dimension, um, we're finding out that, that, that it does shrink a little bit in the machine as we print them. Um, and we also know that it needs to increase for tall parts over, short, over small parts. Um, next slide, please. So once we get through the manufacturing preparation, um, uh, we also we also um, are, are starting to use an FEA program that that allows us to um, 
predict um, survivability in the brown in the brown part phase. So we're starting to use that, and we're finding that to be quite quite effective. So so once we get once we get all that done in in the manufacturing preparation, then we then we do the three D printing. Of course, again, it generates the green part size, um, and we slice uh, the slice file, generate the program, the GCO program. Again, the parameters are a good place to start that BASF has developed. Uh, we're finding that the, the material dry is, is very helpful. Um, it doesn't have to be though, but, but we, do, we do keep ours dry and we, and we keep our humidity controlled in the room in the printer, mainly inside the printer. Um, we found that, we've found that a heated chamber does help a little bit, especially on tall parts um, for, 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 uh, for, uniform, for uniform layer thickness. Next slide. Um, so uh, before we get to here, a couple things I want to mention. Uh, we also we also add material to the bottom of the part surface sometimes, um, and then we machine that off flat with the top. So so uh, we'll add add a little bit of additional material, flip the part over. We we'll either machine the top or we'll sand the top flat. Um, and again, the flat flatness is is very critical. I think that was mentioned before that the, the flatter your part is when it goes through the binding process, the better off you are. Um, and then for shipping, uh, these parts are fairly robust. So when we ship them out to, to our, to our uh, debind and centering house, um, we wrap them up um, in, in bubble wrap and then we put them in a box and we kind of line the box and, uh, and we send them out. So, so it's a very, they're, they're, they, are, they are quite robust. So uh, don't think that they're, they're, very, they're uh, something that'll break easily, but package them carefully so, you, so they don't. Uh, we just shipped out 85 parts uh, yesterday for debind and centering. So catalytic debinding and centering. Uh, this is something that I would recommend if you want to really get into the, to the specifics of this to go to, the, to your house that's doing that. Uh, BASF material is based on their catamol material, which requires a catalytic debinding, and that's that's in like an acid environment. Um, so there's special machines that actually do that. And if you want the best results from your part, I would recommend that you you go to a place that can do actually catalytic debinding and centering. Um, so in this particular case, we're using DSH technologies. So if you want to know more about that and really get into depth of, a, of the process, I would go there and talk that's to them. Actually, um, that's actually who handles, D DSH handles the, if you get it from MatterHackers anyway, you get a debinding and sintering ticket that allows you to send in a kilogram of material. And that all goes through um, DSH. So everybody's on the same page on that one. Actually, that works out very well too. Yeah. That's a really good, really good uh, offering you have there. Tickets and, are uh, great, right? 50 bucks if you need an extra ticket. 50 bucks. <laughs> Can't get any better than that. Especially yeah. if you're sending out 80 parts. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting though, because it's another thing to think about when you get a spool of three kilograms of material um, each ticket is good for a kilogram of parts. So, you know, while maybe you have a print fail here and there, hopefully not, hopefully you're, you know, pro do, do your prototype of your, um, of your part first in, uh, in something in a PLA or something before you actually print with the, um, with the BASF. But um, in theory, you just, you put as close, get as close to that one kilogram as you can in that box and that's your one ticket. 
an extra 50 bucks for an extra ticket, another, you know, as close to that kilogram as you can get, like, wait until you have that full kilogram, quick, quick, uh, you know, pro, pro tip, little hack for that one. Okay, uh, next slide, please. So the, in this particular part, uh, th this part shown on the picture here, um, we printed this. This this has a lot of little leads that fit down in those those slots and holes that are down in there. And they're also not straight going down in. They curve in different different directions. Um, we used to make this part uh, by machining, and it was separated into several different parts. and And this this to, to make this part costs costs six seven thousand dollars just to get one of these made. And um, we're saving a lot of money and. Plus, we're able to add other features to it as as we go along, and and we don't have to go in and and do expensive machining on on uh, uh, a machined fixture. But for this, like for this part as an example, we removed some holes that were very close tolerance. We're talking plus or minus a thousandth of an inch on some of these size of these holes. Uh, we did add material at the bottom for finished machining. Um, so so we. Could you back up one? Sorry. Okay. So we did add material at the bottom for finished machining. Uh, the two the two large holes we used for alignment, um, and and everything in this part measured out very well when it came back, and and everything in that picture you're seeing was printed. So so we used those holes to align it for finished machining, and uh, it's worked out very well. Next slide, please. So here's the here's the the process, uh, an example for this part. So uh, we had the green part that we printed and then the, the, the brown part and then the centered part there. Uh, material cost for this particular part each is $128.47, 19 hours to build. And the cost for centering, we had $80. Uh, we went with uh, your, um, your faster centering process. Ah. As you guys <laughs> offer. So. United service, fancy, fancy. Those are the top of the nice line. <laughs> So uh, and this, that's this particular part that was, like I said, once we got it back, then we did the machining on it. Next slide, please. Uh, here's an example of another little part. This one's used to uh, hold a um, electronic component with wires on it to hold it off off of the circuit board when it's installed. You'll see a, in, the, in the design model, you'll see a slot in there. We actually removed that slot when we printed this part. We added a raft around it uh, just to make sure everything was flat on the table. And then you, you'll see the printed green part with, with the raft removed. And then there's the centered dense part after, after um, centering. Um, again, the material cost was cheap, $20, three hours to make four of them. And of course we paid $80 to get it centered. Um, what they do when the part comes in is, is uh, they, we EDM the slot in cut the end off, EDM the slot, and then the bottom has to be highly polished. So they polish the bottom so that it, when it sits on the board and slides on, on the circuit board, it doesn't damage anything. We made these out of plastic before, but but they didn't last very long uh, due, due to the, the machine it has to go through when it does the actual soldering of the wires. So um, this, this worked out very well. Next slide, please. Here's a, here's a cost comparison for if we were going to machine these parts instead of 3D printing them. Um, and you can see that 
that uh, our savings was was $2,318. So you can see the cost there for material was higher uh, for printing was was less for for machining. Manufacturing cost was a lot less. Of course, we had the debind and centering. We did all 50 of them. And then our post machining costs, which we went outside for that, uh, but that was $2,500. So again, we, we saved quite a bit of money by making 50 of these. And these are an ongoing thing. So a lot of, a lot of different programs use this on different machines out on the floor. So uh, there's, there's quite a few more that'll be made. Next slide. Um, so we wanted to know um, how how stable the process was, and so so we took six of the parts that we printed previous on the previous slide of the fifty, and we measured them, um, and you can see how close some of the dimensions are uh, from part to part to part. Um, doesn't necessarily mean when you do your first part that you're going to be you may not exactly be to the dimensions you thought you were going to be, but once you once you change your scale value and you maybe print another one to get to those tighter tolerance parts, which these are, um, then you can see the the um, uh, accuracy or the repeatability from part to part through through the process. Um, and, and the hardness values there are, are pretty good. There's one outliner there, but 35, but uh, it's not a problem. So, so we our goal our goal is to hit a profile tolerance zone of, of like ten thousandths of an inch for up to two inches, so that's that's our goal. Uh, and and here's another one uh, part for a fixture. This this whole fixture is three D printed. Um, all the components on here. Uh, this does not go through the shop at all. Uh, there's basically no machining on this whatsoever. And um, so we print it and it gets assembled and the pins get pressed in. And uh, we, the part that you're seeing that we printed, uh, the metal part there, uh, was plastic originally, and they kept they kept failing, they kept breaking because you got to pull pull that back as a spring in there, and they kept snapping it off. So we went to a metal part on here, and uh, that's that solved our issues. You can see how how uh, the material cost there, the eight sets, and what that cost, and and it took five hours to to print eight of those eight sets. So. Um, um, the threads are printed, so the threads are printed in, in both part on both parts, and the part is laying horizontal. You'll notice that um, because because of the height ratio and the diameter, it will fail. It will fail in the in the in the debinding process if we try to stand it up. So we lay it down, and printing it at it, it, uh, low layer thicknesses, um, we're able to to achieve threads that that the two parts fit together after they're after they're centered. And I believe that's it. That is it. Amazing. Thank you so much. I'm just, I'm so grateful that you are, while you're, while you're not able to, to show us where, where you are, um, that you're able to share with us what you're doing and more importantly, how you're doing it. Um, especially those things like those, um, the, um, the threads and the repeatability and the, the scalability of this is just, um, hopefully very inspiring for um, other people that are maybe starting uh, starting a business where they need parts like these, but they're um, inaccessible for their budget in any other way. Yeah, we've printed parts here that are seven inches in size of, of let's say it's a, it's a housing that's seven inches by seven inches by two inches tall. 
and it had all kinds of features in, internally in it. But uh, we were able to print that and uh, and went through the binding and sitting process fine. And uh, so, but you got to follow the guidelines. You've got to follow the design guidelines. Yeah, it's called it's called design for additive, folks. Embrace it because it's coming. Uh, Mark, I had a question for you. You mentioned uh, threaded products. Uh, what what kind of tolerances do you need for those threaded products? And did you need any post machining? Uh, on those when you had to deal with threads? Well, if it was going to be a, a something that's used in our product, we, we would not print the threads in. This is a fixture component, <laughs> so we don't really care. We, we They go together and they lock together and we're happy with that for fixturing. But if it's for a product, yeah, we would definitely machine the threads in. Mark, you had uh, on your comparison model for the 50 parts, you had around $1,000 of manufacturing costs. Can you elaborate to the criteria for what you consider the manufacturing cost uh, of that $1,000? Oh, the, uh, that was for, for um, the time that we spent getting the parts ready, getting the parts in the queue, mm -hmm. uh, removing the parts from the machine, doing sanding the bottom of it off if it needed to be, prepping them. Gotcha. That's what that, that's what that, in, that's so what that, that built labor into that process too. Okay. It's the labor, the machine ran by itself. Uh, we'll gotcha. turn it on and, and just leave it on and, and we go home and, and, uh, let it finish what it's doing. Gotcha. All right. Yeah, that was what I was curious about. I think, uh, Mark, you mentioned, actually, it might have been you, Eric, who mentioned automation working its way into the additive space. Uh, I, I was impressed, uh, I think it was three years ago at the Rapid Show, how much the ecosystem around additive is really building up. How many, uh, instead of just having machines there, we, we saw all the, the, the component suppliers and, and the uh, automation folks. I've seen some applications with an EDM built into the same case as the machine to cut uh, parts off of the build plate. What, what are some other examples of automation you've seen that you think are going to drive this uh, forward? Well, to, to elaborate on that first, the backstory of all this automation is the number of folks that have popped up in small business that have just seen the power of the print farm. Uh, when you look at your Etsy suppliers, the folks, you know, we have multiple companies that we've worked with that they learned early on if they design it for additive, they can produce it for additive, and then they can sell it with additive production. And what's happening is that they're in business, they're making money, and they're making product, and now they're trying to figure out how to optimize their time even more so. So instead of having to come in, we actually experienced this a lot during COVID when we were making, you know, thousands upon thousands of face you know, it, it was great. It was awesome. We, we did cycle time. We figured it all out. But the fact is, someone still had to come in and re-push the button and clear the plates. And that next step, the next leap, of course, is that the printer just runs and runs, runs. As long as you provide enough filament or production material at the onset, you can let this thing run for days and then optimize your time even more. So there, there is already a, a need for the automation because people realize, hey, I can produce even more with less of my time. So there's the motivating factor. So what we are seeing right now is that you are seeing the low cost model realize this, this space and say, okay, auto, automation's next. So let's try a belt printer system. And the belt printer system generally is going to be, not only does it has a technically an unlimited Z-axis capability, but it just prints and produces. It also reduces some of the leveling issues because the extruder never has to move but more than the, the X direction and the Y direction. So you have an improvement there. You're also seeing some of the other folks that are actually like, you know, you know, the Q3D systems, they're doing a new type of build material that actually holds so well that 
when you're printing, I mean, it's gripping and it's gripping tight. It holds it down. And then when it goes back to room temperature, it just releases and the part just slides off. And that is, of course, I think they're, they're, in, they're in beta stage right now. We're using tests with them as well, but that's going to be on the market. And then you're going to see more improvements like that. It's just the mentality has occurred that one person not only can run a bunch of pro, you know, production printers, but they may only have to come in once or two, every two or three days. And, you know, again, it goes back to that manufacturing cost. You know, the labor of this, the labor of that, if you actually reduce your time to cycle yourself, then you're making even more profit. Uh, some of the other folks that have talked to those who are actually doing this through Etsy and those kind of, you know, modern platforms they're talking about, they're only getting maybe 60, 70% of the potential production time simply because of human factors. And uh, that, that's, that's leading us to a whole other process, you know, switching out from one part to the next. And do, do you see the, the need for something, the equivalent to uh, a, a bar feeder uh, in the CNC world for additive, where you'll have a, a magazine or something like this replacing filament as it's used uh, to, to keep these processes going 24 seven? That's, a, that's an excellent question. Uh, your, easy, your easy move is probably to switch over to the big rolls right off the bat. But the other catch is this, it's all of these exotic materials. Let's look at, look at how many things are just coming onto the market, one right after the other. So I would imagine to take advantage of that, we're gonna be still dealing with the filament model for a while, just because something new is gonna be out there. And we wanna to try to produce with it, it's gonna have better properties and we would keep adapting. And then as it matures more and more, then we will have feedstock, we'll have you know a whole new process there to go with it. I think we'll do the deal with the rolls though, just because of all the cool stuff. And I often equate to this. It's like the smartphone and the app. You know, when we got the smartphones, then everybody became an app maker and look at all that we have access to now. Now we have this platform that can produce and the apps are the materials. The apps are these things that these chemical companies are out there creating day in and day out that are revolutionary in capability. And they're making materials that we cannot even use conventionally. You cannot inject and mold them to save your life, but you can print them all day long. And so that's gonna be probably the biggest driver of all this is the exotic materials and the exotic shapes we can do with this. I'd like to thank our panelists, Eric Woolbridge, uh, Mark Holthouse, and Mara Hittner. Uh, it's been a fascinating discussion. Uh, thank you for your time this afternoon. Yeah. Thank you so thank much. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, I can never get enough of those success stories. Thank you for listening. I hope that you found them helpful. Again, you can get the whole video presentation with the slides at matterhackers.com slash podcast. Back to you, Dave. Now we're sitting down with Taylor, who oversees our R&D and does much of the testing for new materials here at Matterhackers and has a ton of experience with this metal filament. And I got just some basic questions. Someone has a, a machine in their workshop. Uh, what are the basic hardware requirements for printing with uh, BASF's metal materials? Uh, yeah, it's not, it's not super complicated. Um, number one is you need a, a hardened nozzle of some sort uh, because it is abrasive. So brass is not gonna cut it. Um, Hardened steel, Olson Ruby, tungsten carbide, one of those options that's out there, um, you need that. Um, number two is you need, your, your heated bed needs to be able to reach around 100 C. Uh, most beds do that, so that's probably not something requiring a, an upgrade or anything, but 
something to keep in mind. Um, also, important note on um, the extruder as well. Uh, it's a good idea to have hardened gears in your extruder uh, to go along with the hardened nozzle so that you're not wearing out your extruder uh, if you're printing a lot of this stuff. Um, and then the last thing that's important is the actual bed surface itself. So the BASF materials don't stick to anything. Um, the best options are glass with Dymafix, um, Captain Tape with Dymafix um, are the two that we recommend most. Um, there are some other glues that are out there that um, work well, but um, not as good as the Dymafix that we've had the most success with. Yeah, that's worked pretty well. And uh, here's an opportunity because I've said many times that this, uh, this material you can succeed and you really can print with like on a wide variety of material, uh, sorry, printers. Uh, are, are there any real limitations to the hardware? Um, not really. We, it's, it's quite a bit easier to print than say ABS. It doesn't, doesn't warp as much. Um, so a bit easier to deal with there. I've printed it on um, three millimeter machines, 1.75, open machines, enclosed machines, uh, big machines and small machines. Um, so it's pretty, it's pretty accommodating. Uh, it, the main things are, I mean, as long as you have the hardened nozzle, the appropriate nozzle and the appropriate bed surface, um, it's pretty straightforward. The, the, the difficulty really comes in actually setting up your part design for success through the debinding and sintering process. Right, the, the actual part design uh, and its success or failure during the debinding and sintering process is uh, likely more of a, a roadblock than any hardware pieces. Correct. Uh, cool. Uh, we all love watching a first layer. Any you know tips of tips of the trade for uh, getting that first good layer and then therefore a successful part? Well, the, the main thing with uh, the metal, and it's going to not just be on the first layer, but throughout the part, is that any air gaps or voids in your part are potential failure points through the debinding and sintering process. So um, while a first layer is important for every print, it's particularly important for the BASF stuff because it gives you the first look at whether or not you're extruding properly. If you see any little voids or gaps between your first layer lines, chances are you're, you're setting yourself up for failure down the road. Um, in terms of difficulties, um, it's, it's pretty standard in terms of what you're looking for. Uh, the main thing that you, I mean, the adhesion can be an issue, um, but actually with BASF materials and the Dymafix, what, what is more likely to happen is that you have too good of adhesion, not uh, not bad adhesion, and and the reason for that, is, or I mean the the issue with that is that removing your parts from the bed becomes uh, the tricky thing, not not getting them to stick for the first layer. Um, so there's tips and tricks for that, or or ways to avoid that. But um, essentially, the larger your part, the more difficult it'll be to remove, and so you may need to employ one or more of those techni techniques for, for removal. 
I have turned one part into two parts accidentally by removing it off the print bed. <laughs> yeah, the the nice, I mean, it's a good thing about the filament, but it can be it can be bad depending on how you look at it. But it's it's actually really easy to deal with after you've printed. It's it's fairly soft, malleable, so easy to easy to clean up with like a little exacto blade or sanding. So you can get that part really smooth and and exactly the way you want it before you send it off for debinding and sintering. But because of that, it's also not that difficult to break if you're removing the part um, from the bed. You can you know snap a part or or break a feature off um, if you're not if you're not careful. Pretty robust, a little brittle. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's I I don't even know if I'd call it brittle. It because it's not like PLA and that it like snaps. It almost kind of just folds. I mean, it it just well, it's, it's like a tough like a really tough clay. Yeah, exactly. That that's that's actually a good description. Uh I and I, you mentioned it briefly, but cleaning it up as a green part much easier than cleaning it up as a stainless steel part. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do not want to be doing a significant processing of the part once it's been sintered. Which is totally doable. You can machine it, you can grind it and all these yes. things, but removing layer lines uh, easier done in my clay analogy than it is in a hardened steel analogy. Yes, and unless you're planning to machine this part down um, on a CNC or manual lathe or mill, then you do not want to be doing any cleanup after it's sintered. Um, you've printed with more of this material, at least probably than any human in the United States. What are your couple just tips for success in the printing process and the debinding and sintering process since you've got the most experience, I think? Yeah, so number one, uh, it's a mistake I've made early on is make sure you scale your parts properly. Yep. Uh, I have both scaled them improperly or forgotten to scale them, printed and then realized after that, oh, this isn't going to work. Um, yeah, when you're removing 20% of the material that is the thermoplastic that allows you to print it, the shrinkage is uh, significant. Correct. Um, but, it's a, but it's predictable. A, right. It is very predictable, which is, was shocking to me the first couple runs that I got parts back. I, I just was really stunned at how repeatable it was. Um, the first parts that I designed to send off, I added a lot of slop or tolerance in it to account for it. It was actually a little planetary gear and I was, yep. I wanted to make sure that it came back and was functional. So I gave it way more, way more clearance than I, I normally would. But I did that, I printed that part twice and um, both times came out virtually identical to what was modeled. So I stopped, I stopped adding more clearance than I needed. Um, but the main things to look for um, are really the, the basic guidelines that BASF gives. Um, but they just are, they're more strict, I think, than most other rules with 3D printing. You know, um, thin walls are generally, there's a bunch of different ways to handle thin walls with FDM printing. And you can print thin walls with this material, but you're not gonna get successful debinding and sintering with thin walls beyond a certain point. So um, just because it prints doesn't mean that it'll be successful in the debinding and sintering process. And that's, that's probably the most important thing to keep in mind. Um, 
you know, you can't, you can't use support material. So anything that would require support material to print is not going to succeed or come out successful from the debinding and centering. Um, so you just have to pay attention to your overhangs, your overhang angles or, or um, wall thicknesses too. Um, and with that is anything that you can do to give yourself a little overhead from the recommended like minimums is going to go a long way. So I've seen customers have parts that they sent out that were like within 0 0.05 millimeters of the min of the minimum recommended wall thickness and they had a failure and they bumped it up and they literally added 0.5 millimeters and sent it off and it was successful. Yep. So that you know half millimeter doesn't seem is not a lot it's a really small number but it can be enough to to make your part either successful or a failure yeah and i think we've seen it uh through users that have more experience uh yourself included is the basic guide that uh, basf has and actually we have one on matterhackers.com that's like a whole video that goes into a much deeper dive and higher specificity of some of the design considerations how to clean your parts and all those things but you can graduate and break these rules along the way. Uh, model in your own support, for instance, that you will maybe later grind away. That allows you to, to gain some momentum there. Uh, but really for your first, I'd say, three runs, stick to the basic guidelines because they're so powerful and well ironed out at this point. Yeah, I, totally. That's, uh, and, and we did that, and as I got more familiar with the process and the printing. We did start sending off some parts with kind of different um, configurations to see how they would come back from the, the debinding and centering and then dealing with them in the post process. Um, but definitely for your first couple runs, or at least the first run, you wanna adhere to those rules as, as closely as you possibly can to give yourself the best chance of, of a successful uh, print and, and post-processing. Right on. And like I said, for a deeper dive and more specificity, check out that video on the product page on Matter Hackers. But uh, thanks for your technical expertise, Taylor. Anytime. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. This has been Dave Gaylord with the Matter Hackers podcast. See you next time.